Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. In this episode, we are revisiting my conversation with Caitlin Jenner, who won Olympic decathlon gold back in 1976. And we recorded this chat in the living room of her home in Malibu. I hope you enjoy. Caitlin Jenner. I'm here. How are you? You know what? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Thank by you. The, go by on. the way, go I on. have to ask a question. Go Is everybody from the UK named Simon? There's a lot of us. I know. I know. I know, I know Simon Cowell. Now I know you. Yeah. Every time I'm running into somebody, I don't know if it's... We're, is an, it we're an exclusive bunch. Name? It's becoming less common. It's a bit old school. Oh. But okay. yeah, I think there was a period... You're at the end of an era. <laughs> That's it. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, oh, in... it's my pleasure. I mean, it's not... London. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, there's the ocean. We got the mountains. It looks actually quite nice now, but as you probably saw even over there, we had fires come through here. Yeah. And uh, I stayed until about a minute before it hit because it was coming up that canyon right. so intensely. Tornadoes 200 feet in the air of flames coming at you. At the last second, I always stay with the house because the big fire goes through so quickly, you just stay in the house till it goes through. And uh, I looked at that and I said, eh, you know what? <laughs> if it burns, it burns. I'm out of here. You yeah. know? So we went down the hill and videotaped it. And it was pretty frightening. But it didn't affect the house? Well, there was about $300,000 worth of damage. Okay, so a little bit. Yeah, in that pool, there had to be probably close to 15 dead rats, dead, dead uh, rabbits. Really? Uh, soot. I mean, everything had to. Be, the house had to be sanitized. It was, it was a mess. Yeah. And a lot of the things on the outside got, right. You know, messed well, up. Well, it looks pristine now. You've got your, yeah. you know, various trophies here. I saw your Guinness World Records. The fastest ever to form or a million Twitter followers, and I think four hours and that was it. Three minutes or something like that. That's, you know who I beat? I think I did Barack Obama. Barack Obama, yeah. very good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I've been doing my research. This is very good, Simon. I've read your I like this. twice. It's a good start for this interview. Well, good. I'm glad we're off on the, on the right foot. So it's fair to say, Caitlin, you've had an interesting life. Well, yes. Uh, when you, I have the great double, Olympic decathlon champion and Glamour's Woman of the Year. I hope nobody ever has to go through that in their lives, please. Yeah. Um, but yes, it has... 
It's been quite a journey, uh, quite a journey. Interesting perspective as I look out on life and all the things that I've done. Um, but there was, uh, you know, when I'd give speeches and talk about the games, I would stand up there and look out at the audience and just think, will I ever be able to tell my whole story? I had so many more things going on in my head, things that I was dealing with, that um, <clears throat> I was hoping at some point in my life I would be able to tell that story. And now I've been able to do that. And we're gonna recap okay. a lot of it today and then try and dissect you know, the lessons, because you've learned a lot, I'm sure, over, in fact, I know, Boy, yes. over the course of your life, that is relevant, obviously, to you, to the trans community, but just people generally as well. And I think, you know, you've been through a lot of change, but one thing that's clearly remained constant. What, what change have I been through? Come <laughs> one on, thing on, One thing that has remained constant, sense of humor. You know what, if, if you don't have a good sense of humor about life um, <clears throat> and about people and about all the things that goes on around you, I think it's, it's a pretty dull life. I love to laugh. I love to look at the fun side of things. Um, <clears throat> just recently I did. Uh, Alec Baldwin's roast, so, and I knew when I signed up for it <clears throat> that I was would be a target, and boy, I was a bigger target than Alec Baldwin, and it was his roast. Yeah. So, um, but all the response from people, how well I took it, and this and that, because I love to laugh. I don't take myself seriously, you know. I mean, I, there are serious things that I do, but I don't take myself seriously, and um, and I think that's important in life. Yeah. I think it's important that we smile, we laugh, we enjoy life. Hey, it's short, you know, we're here and we're gone. Yeah. So enjoy it. Absolutely. That's a great mantra. Now, you say you've spoken about, you know, those two days in Montreal, but... You know what? I have brought the... Some people have brought that up in my life. Yeah, yes, I, I can imagine. About it, and I'm going to bring it up again. But also the thing is, it's not just those two days, you know, the run up to the, the games as well, but also there's a new generation of, of people who perhaps are aware that, you know, you were Olympic champion, but don't realise what went into it, when it took place, the relevance of it, how it, to me, stands right at the top in that pantheon of great Olympic achievements. So, and it's a, it's a key part to your story. And it's obviously not the whole story, but it's an absolutely integral part. So we're yes. going to do that and we're going to cover lots. But the best place to start, obviously, is at the beginning. 1949, born... Are you all right with Shouldn't you say 59? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Don't start adding that up, but yes, 49. Okay. Born. Yes, to, so October 28, 1949. Indeed. Yes. So That's to, where it all started. To Father Bill and Mother yes. Esther. Right. And Father Bill was in the D-Day landings. He was. He was uh, with the 5th Ranger uh, Battalion. They uh, were the first boats on Omaha Beach. Uh, he spent months and months training in England, uh, getting ready for the invasion. There were 364 guys in his division. And... 60 came back alive, wow. alive, not just wounded. He got wounded, got Purple Hearts, made it all the way into Germany. Uh, he was the, they were the first uh, group to go in to Buchenwald. Yeah. Um, the Germans had left like three hours earlier. They fled because <clears throat> they knew the Americans were coming and they just kind of walked into town and found this. Um, so that's concentration camp. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, when you're 23, 24 years old, 
tough stuff to go through. Absolutely. And you said that your father had an emotional detachment to some degree because of the experience, understandably, and also that generation. Yeah. And that you inherited it to some degree of him. Yes, I, I think so. Yeah. My dad enjoyed life, but he wasn't the most um, the loving, outside, huggy, this, that, you know. Um, Did that pain you, that he wasn't like that? No, because he was a good person. He was a good man. He worked hard. Uh, he had good moral standings, uh, the way he conducted his life. Um, and a lot of that um, I inherited. I saw that. As a parent, <clears throat> I think probably the most important thing you can do, you can tell your kids everything, you know. Um, and it just doesn't even seem like they're listening. You see those results later on in life. But the most important thing as a parent is to lead by example. Um, the way you uh, conduct yourself with, uh, with other people, uh, the way you treat other people, uh, the way you treat yourself, mm. you know, from the way you eat to the way you exercise, do you take care of yourself? Your kids see all of that kind of stuff, your business, you know, prowess and, and uh, what you're trying to do business-wise and your work ethics. Uh, you, your kids see that, and they, they kind of learn it through osmosis. I think that's the most important thing. So, I, I, yeah, I got a lot out of my dad, and hopefully I brought a lot of that to my kids. And he, you spoke about his humility as well and his belief in actions, not words. Yes. Um, I remember one lesson. <clears throat> uh, I was a young kid, and I competitively water skied. And um, I got good, good at it. And we moved to a lake in Connecticut. And I like, you know, after school, have your friends come over and take the boat out and go water skiing and this and that. And my dad would be there and he'd always, you know, like I was the first one to go out and this and that. And he kind of pulls me off to the side. And he says, I see what you're doing. You're a really good skier. Um, he says, but if you want to impress somebody, maybe you try a different approach. And he says, don't even tell the people that you can ski. Get them down on the dock and teach them how to ski. Get in the boat, start it up, fire everything up, you know, and then they'll realize how difficult it is, you know, and drag them up and get them going. And eventually they'll all come eventually to you and say, oh, I heard you skied, you know, and I go, whoa, yeah, I guess a little bit, you know. And anyway, get out there. And then when you get out there, be the best you can be. And they'll even be more impressed. So, of course, well, kid, I tried that, and it worked. So, um, yeah, I've always I tried to be very humble, but my performances, uh, especially back in the competitive days, uh, were very important. I took those very seriously, yeah. but I did it with a smile on my face. I tell you, I was hoping for lessons. We've got three valuable ones already, but there we go. So, yeah. look, Mom Esther, what was your relationship with your mother like uh, growing up? My mom and I, we, there was never a good relationship, a close relationship growing up. There was always a little bit of tension there, you know? Um, like I think a lot of moms and their, their sons, you know? And that went through really many, many years. Now, my mom's 93. She's my best friend. I talk to her like every day. Uh, we talk about everything. Mm -hmm. um, and my relationship with her today is probably better than it's ever been. Really? You know? And, but it took a while to get there. And then there was the older sister, Pam, who you envied when you were young. Never liked her. Really? Oh, my God. She was like the perfect student. She was like in the National Honor Society, me. She would study like 
five hours a night studying. Um, she was picked as a senior, the most athletic senior. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. How can I follow behind her? Yeah. You know, all Did you feel in her shadow? Oh, yeah. I was like, uh, two, well, two years behind her in school. And uh, yeah, she was tough to grow up. So we were kind of at each other for a long time, you know. Um, and uh, now, you know, as time goes on, I mean, my sister's one of my closest friends, you know. I mean, you know, she's everything, yeah. 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 As well, when you were young, you struggled with dyslexia. Now, yeah. we talk about gender dysphoria not being well understood now and certainly not then, but even dyslexia at that time was not well understood either. They didn't even have a name for it back then. The bigger problem was not being dyslexic and, you know, kind of struggling with reading and not be a good fluid reader in school, which is really important for a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My biggest fear was to go to school because I was afraid the teacher was going to make me read in front of the class. And I was petrified of that. I didn't want anybody to know I had the problem. But the bigger problem is self-confidence. Um, you think you're not smart. Uh, that simple process is not working like it does with everybody else. Uh, you lose interest in school. Uh, you kind of, you know, go hide. Hmm. And that was more me. I, I didn't want anybody to know I had the problem. Hmm. You know? So did they label you then as someone who was not academic? And oh, then did you internalize that? Uh, yes. Um, and it wasn't until really junior high school. Uh, I can remember somebody, uh, you know, some psychologist giving it a word being, you're dyslexic. My first impression is, oh my God, am I going to die? <laughs> you know, I didn't know. It sounds so terrible. So that really hit your self-esteem then, the, the, the dyslexia? Oh, big time. Really? Yes, and that's why in fifth grade, uh, we had a running race in uh, gym class out in the parking lot. We had to run around all these chairs, and they timed every kid in school. And I wound up having the fastest time in the whole school. And everybody's coming up and saying, you know, oh, I didn't know you were that fast. Everybody's giving me a pat on the back, and I beat everybody in school. I wasn't getting that in the classroom. So and you had a status all of a sudden. And so all of a sudden, I kind of go, what's this thing called sports? And uh, that's where kind of it all started. And just for fifth grade, so how, what, how old is that? Because we don't, in the UK. 10. So 10. 11. Right. Yeah, somewhere in there. And this is around the same time that you're drawn to your mother's closet as well. Um, I, people suffering from gender dysphoria, um, they basically, you're born that way, just like you're right-handed or you're left-handed, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's kind of just who you are. Sure. Okay. I mean, there's all these great explanations of this and stuff. It's just who you are. Okay. Uh, and fortunately, which is great, there's diversity in the world. I think it's great. All, all humans aren't the same, you know? And that's good. And so, uh, yeah, it's something I didn't understand, especially, you know, growing up in the 50s and the 60s, you don't understand those tendencies. You don't understand why. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I used to sneak in there and try stuff on and do this and that go out. Sometimes we live in an apartment complex, go out and sneak out and get around. Um, and then I, I, I just felt comfortable doing it. Mm. Uh, I was just afraid I was going to get caught. That's all, you know. Did you have a sense of shame around that as well at that uh, time? I did. Shame because obviously I didn't tell anybody. Sure. But back then nobody knew anything about it, and I didn't know anything about it. And, you know, when you look back on your life, 
and you kind of try to figure all these things out. Um, you know, being dyslexic, gender dysphoric, you know, these types of things going on in my life, kind of struggling in school a little bit. That's what made me hmm. who I was later on down the line. Because for me, when I got into sports, um, it became uh, more important for me personally to succeed at sports and to work hard at sports uh, because of all these issues. I think back on my life and I think, what if I been an average? What if I had been an okay reader? Okay, no gender dysphoria, happy with all that kind of stuff. Sports come along, I wouldn't have needed it. Mm. It wouldn't have been that important to me because everything's kind of just struggling along. And I look at a lot of people who are successful, yeah. you know, and done tremendous things in their life. And then you look back on their lives, oh my God, you know, you had, this is what you were struggling with when you were younger. You know, it's kind of like if it's taken away a little bit here, it's given to you over here. Your job is to go find this area over here, mm. you know, where you excel at. And you can take, you know, uh, everything you got inside you and put it into something. Mm. Um, everybody's got stuff. Everybody. Everybody has things in life they got to deal with. They got stuff. These happen, this happened to be my stuff. Yeah. You know? And I try to do my best throughout my life uh, to be able to deal with it. And what's best for me, and honestly, what's best for the people around you and your loved ones. Of course, yeah. You know, that's really important too. It's interesting when you talk about very successful people because I think it's becoming increasingly evident that particularly particularly in sports, but in all spheres, people yeah. who are mega, mega successful, oftentimes there is a real driver which, which may be, you know, a sense of difficulty within them. Yes, totally agree with that. So I look back on my life and I've said, you know what? I'm glad I had all those issues. They say success is not measured by heights attained, but by obstacles overcome. I was going to quote that to you later. But yeah. yeah. Well, see, I beat you to it. <laughs> God. You read the book. Yeah, there we did. Thank you. Let's dive into then a bit of the, the sports, okay? So okay. you mentioned the fact that you were a champion water skier. And yeah. your, your father in a, a wonderful documentary I watched uh, on YouTube, which I mentioned to you before, yeah. 10 for Gold. Oh, it's so good. You know what? That, that uh, came from um, right after the games, uh, I signed with General Mills and Wheaties. Mm -hmm. And they put that together. Uh, and back in those days, it was on film. And they sent it out as a motivational half hour, 28 minutes long, whatever it is, a motivational presentation to young people. And they sent it to thousands and thousands of schools for people to watch. Yeah. And it really got viewed, and it's still viewed on YouTube. It's, in fact, it's, it's a great watch. I know. In fact, um, uh, Ashton Eaton, in 2012, when he won the games uh, in London. The decathlon, yeah. Yeah, the decathlon. Um, I did an interview with him that night, and he goes, you know what I watched the night before I started? Because I watched 10 for gold. No wonder he won. I know. That's what I said. I, I said I take complete responsibility <laughs> or responsibility you know, for it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a fabulous view. Right. So 
So you, you, you excelled in various sports, but at college you, you fell for the decathlon and you burst onto the scene in 1972. You weren't even expected to make the US team in 72. Not even close. You, you, they you, didn't even know you, my name. You beat everyone by like 20 seconds in the 1500. In the, in Actually, the, yes. Beat, like uh, beat Steve Goff by 21 seconds. 21 seconds. Second. It's important so, so the f- because I had to beat him by 18 seconds yeah. to make it into third place. And I ran an eight-second personal best time. Wow. Eight seconds faster than I'd ever done before. And I beat him by 21 seconds. Amazing. That one race changed everything in my life. That was the first time I had to dig down really deep. I didn't think I would ever make it on an Olympic team. But all of a sudden, in the last half hour, I was in 11th place coming into the last five events, you know. Um, I was in fifth place going into the 1,500 meters. Very good event for me. And uh, fortunately, not a good event for Steve Goff. (laughs) But um, that was the first time I had to really reach down into my soul and come up with a performance right at that moment. And I was able to do that. And that race lived in my soul the rest of my career. I always knew if it came down to the 1500 meters, the last event, I would run any time I had to, to win. Because you'd done it It was just there. So 72, right, you rock up Munich Olympics. Right. So you came 10th and... I was happy with that. Yeah, yeah very, I mean, very. It's not bad. You were only 22 yeah. at the time. I was 22 and it was only, I think, the 10th and 11th decathlon of my life. You still, you still look disappointed when you, when you cross the line, which I think is, is in the uh, 10th for gold. But then you say there was that click moment. So Ovilov, wasn't it? So Ovilov, Nikolai Ovilov, yes. I got that right. He won the gold in, in 72. And when he stepped up on the podium you had that decision. It wasn't a dream, it was a decision. You're like, right, I'm gonna give I'm going after everything. Well, I was, um, I'd never obviously been to an Olympic Games before. Uh, I go there, it's overwhelming how big it is, you know, compared to anything else you've ever done in your life. And, uh, <clears throat> and I competed well. And once it was over with, I had never seen an Olympic gold ceremony live, happening right in front of me. So after it was over with, I waited around the, you know, 20 minutes, half hour, whatever it was, uh, for the ceremony. And I stood off on the side and watched it and watched Avilov. He scored 8,454 points, broke the world record that day. Um, I was so impressed with his performance and what he was able to do. Um, but I basically said to myself, I'm watching this and my heart's pounding. You know, and I'm watching this and I just go, you know what, I never expected to get this far. But what if I take the next four years of my life and every minute of every day, I test myself just to see how good I can become at this, you know? And because you know what, and I'm looking at him up on that thing and it says, that's what I want out of life right there. What was it though, the adulation? What was it? No, I don't care about the adulation. I wanted to be on the same stage as Nikolai Avilov, as Bob Mathias, as, you know. Um, to be you know, a great. All the way back to Jim Thorpe. Um, you know, they, they did it, you know. So being the best you could be? Being, being great. the best would be, be the best in the world at right, what okay. I do. Right, okay. And I said, then I'll, uh, in four years, okay, I'm going to do this for four years. If I can't do it in four years, I'm not going to do it in eight years. Yeah. So there was finality for me in that four-year period. Right. I had an end. 
I could give up everything else. I was living in a $145 a month apartment, driving a 63 VW bug that I paid $175 for and training my butt off. Uh, but I figured I could, while other kids in their 20s are getting jobs and you know trying to get life figured out and this and that, um, I, was, um, uh, I was totally dedicated. I'll pick up the pieces on the 30th of July in 1976 when the games are over with and go on with my life. Uh, but right now, this is my life. And I train six to eight hours a day every day. I started that night at midnight. Yeah. I couldn't sleep. Pounding the streets of Munich. Pounding the streets of Munich. I couldn't sleep. I was so pumped up. I was more pumped up after the competition was over with because it was so clear in my head. The training you, know? you did blew my mind, though. So you trained six to eight hours a day, 365 days a year? All year round, yeah. Unbelievable. It was, it was... And this was in a time when... So it's very different to now. So it was an amateur era. So you had to oh, be yeah. completely self-sufficient. And there was no money in the sport whatsoever. Six to eight hours a day for 365 days a year for four yeah, years. That's what I did. Did you have periods in that where the focus and where the drive waned? No, I never had. I never, I never had the drive though. I, I, because, again, like I said earlier, there was finality to it. Okay, if I would have been like, oh, if I don't do it in '76, maybe I'll stay around till '80 and. You know, maybe I got, you know, six, seven years of doing this. And so there's no big rush. No, I was in a rush. I would run around that track and, and you know, during the off season, I would do my off, my, my, I would do 70 mile weeks uh, in the off season. Um, and I'd be running along and sometimes I'd have to do it at night. And, and uh, I would be, have, Avilov would be in my head because I knew if I'm running at night, it's his morning. So he's probably out for a morning workout, you know? And so I'm out here, I'm, I'm still running here on the other side of the world. You know, it may be dark, but I'm still running. And I used to think about stuff like that all the time. So, so he was your, in your head as your fuel? All the, all the time. And uh, yeah, so I'm very lucky that I had the finality to it all because yeah. I knew it was going to be over with. And yeah. I'll pick the pieces up and go on in life. Because this is not real life. This is just scoring points. Did it seem like a long time at the time? And obviously looking back, it's the blink of an eye. But did, did, it, did it drag that four years? or? No, not really. Did it drag? No, because I, I always had training to do. I always had things I wanted to hit. Yeah. Did you Every enjoy the training? Every morning I woke up. I remember waking up and thinking, okay, I got this workout, I got to go do this, I got to do that, I got to lift today, today maybe I'll throw the shot, disc or whatever, you know, work on something else technically. Um, and so I would be highly motivated all, all the time. And I would think to myself sometimes, because when you do a lot of running, especially distance running and stuff, you got a lot of time to think. And I would think to myself, you know what? I'm not making a dime doing this, okay? At best, you got a gold medal sitting at the, at the end of the rainbow. Not even real gold, okay? What it symbolizes is everything, but it's, you know, there's no material reason. If you win the gold, it doesn't mean you're gonna get a job or it doesn't mean you're gonna do this or that after it's over with. It's a medal. But I thought, I felt like I was so rich inside because I was so motivated every day. And I thought to myself, I never want to lose that in my life. I never want to wake up in the morning and kind of dread the day about, oh my gosh, what am I going to do today? Got this, that. 
No, I always want that enthusiasm for life when I get out of bed in the morning. And there has been times in my life since then that I have just totally lost it, yeah. Mm. I mean, I spent six years in a house down here because I didn't really want to come out because I never felt like I fit in anywhere. Mm. Um, and there's been a lot of dark days since then, you know. Um, and I always think about those times. What am I going to do to make this day exciting? I want to live this day. You only get so many of them. Okay, so 76. Put it in a context, right? Forget Rocky IV. It's Sylvester up against Ivan Drago. Yeah. The, the Russian machine. I mean, you really were up against the Russian machine. So you were an amateur. Yeah. And because of the communist system at that time, they essentially were professionals. And this was also at the time, wasn't it, the bicentenary of America. It was the height of the Cold War. Sport was a metaphor for war. You decided that, you know, you weren't going to compete again after 76. All the pressure was on you. In terms of what it meant to you and what it meant to everyone else and the pressure you were under, I mean, it's mind-boggling. I was nervous coming here to chat to you. It's, you know, I was reminding myself. It's and you right. should be. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the games in 76 were actually very special. It was kind of the last year of the amateur athlete. Uh, unfortunately, we boycotted in 1980. Do you remember why we boycotted in 1980? Uh, no. Well, See, nobody does. We boycotted. A lot of guys didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy it? Carter, um, uh, the uh, Soviet Union's involvement in Afghanistan. We were backing Saddam Hussein and all these. It yeah. seems just ridiculous yeah, doesn't today, it? doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. So 76 was extra special. 76 was so special. Um, it was the highest rated Olympic Games of all time and will always be. Because there was no cable TV? No cable TV. There so was just was three networks. 70% of the U.S. population was watching the games because it was done live. And because uh, it was in Montreal, New York time zone. Um, yeah, there was such interest. Three weeks earlier, was the, I mean, our country was 200 years old. Patriotism was at its height. There was so many American flags inside that stadium. Yeah, you just had so many things going on. So did you Going feel... up against the Soviets. And, you know, <laughs> the whole thing, it was too, just too good. Yeah, yeah. Forget Rocky. I mean, yeah. So did you but feel... my race was inside. Everybody else, I hadn't lost a meet. Besides one meet, I know hide it in the pole vault, mm. international championships a year earlier which was a great lesson to learn that you can lose. But if I had finished a race, or finished it, no, I had not lost a meet in, in three years. And I was the world record holder going in, and I was very confident, and I knew I was at my best. But as still, when you get there, anything can happen. But you um, pulled it out of the bag. I couldn't believe it. Again, so decathlon, you say it's all about you know, the internal uh, battle, essentially, because it, it's all about hitting PBs where you can, right. like trying to hit your PBs. So what, 100 meters, first event, PB. Then I knew it was over. I ran 1094 um, at nine o'clock in the morning. I didn't tell anybody because I didn't want to tick them off. You know, yeah. It was my little secret, but inside I said, it's over. It's done, just don't make a mistake. So, okay, we've done 100 meters, PB, you yep. you've won. Long jump, third jump, PB. Right. Shot put, you had a gammy finger. That, so, very that, good. Yeah, yeah right so you, there, that little tendon right there. So, so you hadn't, you hadn't trained. So I really didn't practice it that, you know, the shot But on the day, much. you were like, to hell with it. Well, the third and final throw, you know, put that little finger right there. Who cares? I don't need this <laughs> finger in two days, okay? Put it where it's supposed to go, and let's just get back behind it and let it go. And yeah, hit a, a personal best. High jump, next, 
personal yeah. best. Yeah, it was kind of on a roll. You, I mean, you Third got, attempt, by the way. Unbelievable yeah, roll. And, mean, then, and then the 400 meters. So Fred Thompson, set, who was on the American right, team with you, right. he said he normally used to beat you in the 400. On, the, yeah. on this day, you came burning out of the corner, absolutely took him apart, took everyone apart. I ran that race in my head for four years. Right. And my whole year of training was to peak on that day. And I had run that race in my head so many times. And in my head, I had run that second turn. I said, this is the way I'm gonna run the race. Take off, accelerate as fast as I can to get to my pace, relax, go down the back stretch at that pace. Don't lose it, but stay relaxed, relax, 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 go, 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 go. And as soon as you hit that turn, go. So my threat was just run the hell out of that turn. Just treat it like an open hundred, Yeah. you know? And I came off the turn <laughs> and I couldn't see anybody around me. I wasn't gonna look back, I didn't care. It's only my time I'm trying to get. And I kept waiting for somebody to go, you know? And nobody did the whole way. And uh, I got to the finish line and I wanted to run 47.5. And I ran 47.51. I mean, that speaks to the power of sort of visualization and, and yeah. practicing in your mind like that. So you, you had practiced it in your mind and then produced it exactly as you... As I planned it. I considered the competition 80% of mental challenge. Really? Okay, 20% of physical challenge. Training is 80% physical, 20% mental. You just do it, do it, don't even think about it. Do it, do it, train, train physically. But then it jumps around when you get into competition. It's a mental challenge. And I, I look at every athlete in two ways. Um, there's the athletic body, which is the physical aspect of sport. Um, <clears throat> either you got it or you don't got it. Simon, I can't make you a, a 9-8, 100-meter sprinter. Not with these hips, no, no. No, it just, I, it just physically, it's not there, okay? Not there for me either, I couldn't run that fast. Um, but then there's the mental side of sport, doing the right thing, mentally doing the right things, you know, pushing yourself, knowing how to work out, knowing when to go hard, know when to rest. Then you get in the competition and um, <clears throat> coming up with performances when you have to. Uh, not when some, you know, you want to, when you have to. Once you get in the competition, the work's all done. Now it's just let the mind let it happen. So day one, you, you knew it was in the bag. You didn't sleep a huge amount that night. You, no. You didn't. Plus it rained. Yeah. So did that not worry you? Because the next event's the hurdles long. on day two. Of course. I was petrified of that. Yeah, it rained all night. Poured all night long. Wake up the next morning, look out. It's not raining, but it's solid overcast. Clouds are touching the top of the stadium. Track's wet from the rain the night before. A couple of flights in front of me. Fred Dixon, one of the other Americans and good friend, great person. Slipped, down he went, in the hurdles. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm thinking, what a great first day. All I want to do is survive. I don't even care what my time is, okay? I just want to live through this. I want to live through getting through the night and getting through the hurdles. And, uh, boy, when I ran it, I just stayed on my toes, stayed on those spikes, and just <laughs> got down there, leaned at the tape, and I had such a sigh of relief. Yeah. Um, that I got this thing going again. Okay, I made it through the night. I made it through the hurdles. 
the last four events are my best events. Yeah. So you rock through the discus, the pole vault, which is your favorite event, the javelin. So 1500, the last event. The last one. And you can see this in 10 for gold. You, you can see the, the, the lip wobbling. You could see of you course, were upset. Yeah. So you were, you were crying before the race set off. I was getting pretty cheery because it was the last, hundred meter, or the last 1500 meters of my life. To me, the, the 1500 meters always represented the decathlon, how tough you were. A lot of guys don't run it that fast or will run it maybe fast once and then they know, oh, I don't want to run it, you know. To me, that's a weakness. Um, and it's the ultimate test. You've been out there for two days. You've been on your feet competing for 20 hours. And now they want you to run at 1,500 meters, you know, the metric mile for time. Oh, the last thing in the world you want to do, okay? Your legs are kind of dead. Um, but to me, that's when it all came alive. So the 1500 meters, cardiovascular, I was just more gifted that way. Um, and uh, yeah, to me, it was the ultimate test. At this one, uh, which was gonna be my last 1500 meters, I was certainly not gonna run it slow, okay? I didn't run 70 miles a week to run the 1500 meters slow, okay? But on the other hand, I had already won it. I was in the lead going in. You know, I could have been 100, 150 points behind most guys and I'd still be able to win just by running a really quick 1500. It was already done. Last thing I want to do is go over 8,600 points. And if I just had, I didn't even have to run my best time, just a good time, I would go over 8,600 points because I wanted to be the first guy to do that and then walk away. And uh, so I decided I'm going to go out kind of slow and then pick the pace up on the third lap. And then at 300 meters to go, just whatever you got left, wide open. And if you watch the video, as soon as I look and see the time, it was one second slower than my fastest time ever at that point in the race with 300 meters to go. <laughs> I said, here it goes, baby. <laughs> Put it in the next gear and just boogie down the backstretch as hard as I could. Got into the turn and in my head, I'm thinking, Remember this moment, remember it. I looked up in the stands, like taking little snapshots of everything that was going on around you, uh, running as hard as I could. But, and I said, remember, as you come off the turn with the last 100 meters to go, remember what that looks like, because it's gonna be over with in just a second. Came off the turn, kind of took that little picture of that thing. I remember the, the coming off the turn more than I remember the finish line, you know? And then just boogieing down that finish line as hard as I possibly can. Now, I have a, an, an answer you give in your speeches about, oh, what it's like when you cross the finish line, you won the games, and oh, you want to know what it was actually like? Yeah. So I get to the finish line. Certainly, I expected to win. I already won it before, yeah. so I knew I was going to win. So, next thing I know, uh, as I get to the finish line, I put my hands up in the air and I just screamed as loud as I could. And I kind of stumbled to a stop. And the first thing that went through my head was, you blew it, okay? 1972, like you saw that in that uh, video on 10 for Gold, when I crossed the finish line in the 1500 meters, there was some German photographer took a picture, black and white actually, of me crossing the finish line in the 1500 meters. 
and the hair's kind of back. You've got this look on your face. You're looking up into the sky. The muscles are rippling. I got the line, okay, right between my legs of the finish line of the 1500 meters. The stride is out there. This is like a gazelle going across the finish line. It's a gorgeous shot, okay? He won these awards, so he sends it to me. So, of course, I take a picture, or I take that picture and have it blown up. And then I put a quote over top of it that I really, really liked, okay? It's kind of superimposed over top. And I hang it up in my $145 a month <clears throat> apartment. But when I hang it up, I don't hang it up above the couch. I hang it off to the side of the couch. Why? Because I want room right there for that picture. Okay, so for three years I had it up there of 1976. That's where that one's going. I want the, the line right between my legs. I want the same picture, okay, of me finishing the two games. And uh, so and I had this empty hole in the wall for years. I'd look up and visualize that, you know. And then I get there, and what do I do? I put my hands up in the air. I'm screaming loud. I'm stumbling to a stop. I said, gee, that was not the picture I was supposed to. I visualized what my picture was going to be like at the finish line, and it didn't turn out that way. And uh, so I'm thinking, then I, as I'm slowing down, I'm thinking, ah, oh, that's so stupid. You just won the games. What do you? I felt like kind of running back and taking another picture, you know, going across the finish line like that. And, uh, but I thought, no, nah, I don't want to do that. Uh, that was my first thought. And then the second thought was, as soon as I'm slowing down, and I'm thinking, that's really stupid to think about the stupid picture, this guy starts bumping into me. Two security guards are on top of him. I guess he had jumped the fence and came running out on the field, and he's got an American flag in his hand. Okay, so obviously he's trying to give me the American flag as the two security guys are dragging him away. So anyway, I take his flag. And at that time, nobody did flags at the finish line. Nobody, you know? And so I've got a camera in my face, just about where that camera is, and I'm thinking, uh, okay, what do I do with the flag? I'm very patriotic. I'm a, I love my flag. I'm very patriotic. But is it too hot talky? You know, is it too much to put the flag up? And I didn't know what to do with it. So um, I go, okay, I, I got to put it up. This is our country's bicentennial year. Everybody's got a flag. So, okay, I got to put the flag up. So I take it once, I put it up in the air, hold it up there for a few seconds, bring it back down. The whole crowd goes crazy. I go, oh, that's got to work. But anyway, <laughs> that, was, that was a good response. Um, and so uh, went a little bit further and one other time kind of threw it up in the air. And then I thought, okay, now what I'm going to do, because I think it's too much if I, I, I take your little victory lap with the flag, I'm going to roll the flag up and put it in my bag. So I roll it up and I put it in my bag before I go around the little victory lap. And I just start to go. And all of a sudden I hear these 70,000 people start to boo. <laughs> and I look over and there was a second guy running across the infield with a flag, okay? And two security guys are on him. This guy's running as hard as he can. The whole crowd is watching him. He's got this flag, he's running as fast as he can. Bam, they tackle him right before he gets to me. And this guy's got two security guys on top of him. He's got this sad look on his face like, the flag, take the flag. So I go, oh no. So anyway, I run over and I get his flag and I take it, you know. I figured the guy, who knows where he was after that. In fact, I did run, I ran into the guy who gave me the flag 20 years later, you really? know? Yeah, yeah, he was very nice. 
I told him, thank you, I owe you 10%, yeah. you know? And uh, I rolled that flag up and put it away. So I actually didn't take the victory lap with the flag. I just had it at the finish line, but that was the picture. So, but you set that precedent, right? Okay, and then, yeah. so there you are in this wonderful moment, basking in the glory, you get your gold medal. Next day, you're there and the thought is in your head, what next? And, and Not just what next, the thought next morning, because I still had all these issues and a, a lot of the training and was really running away from a lot of the issues I had. Um, and I remember getting up the next morning, didn't have a stitch of clothes on, walk into the bathroom, metal sitting there on the table, put the metal around my neck, look in the mirror and go, what have you just done? You know, I mean, it's great. What have you just done? Am I stuck with this person the rest of my life? Did you build up this character so big that you're stuck with them for the rest of your life? You know? And, you know, there was so much more to me, so many other things that I was dealing with. Um, I, I, it's, it was scary. Hmm you know, that maybe I'm stuck with him now. With your gender dysphoria, you'd, you'd spoken to your first wife, Christy, about it in 73. Yeah. And so this had been a, you know, something that, that you had shared with other people. Yes. Now, so after the Olympics, obviously we, we know about the, the Wheaties, which is big here, it's not big in the UK. So you, <laughs> you know, you were the, the, the face of the, the cereal, breaking new ground, just like you did with the flag, breaking new ground as this kind of, uh, you know, a way to endorse products. Right. And you in, I mean, incredible hot property. So there were some really nice quotes. The one was, uh, I'm going to do it from memory, roughly. Oh, rough, please do. Please rough, do. Roughly oh, something like, so, Come on, so high up on the pedestal that it would take a crane to get you off. Yes. Hollywood, <laughs> handsome, all these kind of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, Christ. Actually, I did screen tests for Superman. I know you almost, did. almost got the job. I didn't even know if I wanted to do it. I thought it was too big a... You know, here I was suffering from all the issues I was having and, and talk about a strongman image going out and winning the games and going from that and playing Superman. Uh, that was, I think, a little bit too much macho for me. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if... <laughs> it kind of really, really scared what if, me. What if they had said, we want you? Well, one thing I have proven over the years, Simon, I can be bought. <laughs> <laughs> Can't we all? Probably so. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you would too. You'd play Superman yeah, if they for enough money. Of course I would. Of course you, you would. have done it for free. Let's be honest. Um, I don't know. Um, I had to go to London, and I had never done anything like that. Or I had to go to uh, uh, Rome for the interview, and they asked me, do you want to go to Rome and do this interview or do the uh, screen test for Superman? And me, I was so green. I go, uh, screen test, is it? You know, true, false, or multiple choice. I, I, I know nothing, okay? So I went over there and just me, my normal self, and I had fun doing it. You know, it was fun. Got to wear the little suit, you know. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, have a fight with Lexa Luthor. Um, yeah, be in the ice castle. It was great fun. I, it was like playing games. Yeah, I'm sure. Even Marlon Brando yeah. sent 
uh, sent me a letter that he really liked my screen test. Really? Yeah. Wow. So you didn't make it in a Superman, but you did make it on a Murder, She Wrote. I used to love Murder, She Wrote, and you were in an episode of Murder, She Wrote. So you did a bit of acting. You were doing some sports reporting, I guess, as yeah. we would call it, yeah. sports casting, as it's called in America. And people liked your relaxed style. You know, you're good with people, yeah. that kind of thing. But you said then at that point, you know, when the work started to head south a little bit, you know, and you said you didn't know whether the work drying up brought the gender dysphoria forward or the gender dysphoria made the work dry up? Um, it, gender dysphoria, um, uh, to be honest with you, it just, you, you struggle more with yourself than things on the outside, hmm. okay? Um, it's always with you. It's just how you're going to handle it. What's right for me? A lot of people suffer from all kinds of things, and including gender dysphoria. And what's best for them? And everybody does it differently. Some at a very, very, very young age say, sorry, mom, you know, uh, you keep calling me, you know, she, but I'm actually, I'm a he, you, you know, you know. Um, and, and identify at a very, very young age. Um, and others, it, uh, because of life circumstances, they're dealing with it, but they can deal with it, okay? For me, I could deal with it, okay? Uh, I had to sneak around a lot, uh, you know, not be honest with myself or a lot, and a lot of other people, not so much my immediate family, but other people. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I had my own ways of just getting through it the best I can mm. and uh, to try to keep everything going. Um, I dove into work at times um, and certainly over the years dove into family. And to be honest with you, my family was by far the most important and the best part of the whole thing um, uh, because I had so many things. You know, I wound up pretty much raising 10 children uh, I'm currently, I found out my son is pregnant, his wife's pregnant, or his girlfriend's pregnant with twins, so coming up on 20 grandchildren. Wow. Yeah, big family. But uh, uh, my family, by far, was, you know, kind of my backbone. Yeah. Um, but the 80s were a tough period for you, right? So, so you, 80s so you said... You 80s, I didn't have, I didn't have the, the big family around. No, yeah. and you said you spent six years in somewhere not a million miles from here, yeah. you know, where you basically just kept yourself to yourself. And, and you talked yeah. about, like, gender dysphoria at that point being all-consuming and then it just being in your head 24-7. So what's, what, is that, what was that experience like then in the 80s of being consumed by this? Um, and, and how did you come? Well, I had dealt with it for so long, but I had never faced it, okay? So did you start in the 80s? Oh, yeah. It? I thought I was going to transition before oh, yeah. uh, I was 40. Yeah. Yeah, I thought. So you met Trudy. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Hill, Trudy Hill, and started, um, uh, first time I ever went to a therapist. Um, and it was, uh, I was scared to death, my first one. And then, you know, she was great. She dealt with things like this. And it was great because I could open up and finally talk about all these issues with somebody instead of keeping and them did all And did inside. she normalize it then for you? I somewhat normalized it. I knew there were other people. See, honestly, I never met anybody who was trans until after I transitioned. Yeah. I, I couldn't out myself, you know. So uh, I did it in secrecy. Um, I remember one time I was going out of Trudy's office and she goes, you know, uh, the person 
uh, out there in the office waiting to come in next is trans. And it was like, wow, I've barely even seen, you know, somebody who's trans. It's like, so anyway, I went out and sat down for a second and opened up a book like I did, kind of took a few peeks, then she went in. And uh, I went, wow, you know. Uh, I did start on hormones back then. I started with electrolysis. Uh, and you spoke about the electrolysis, so that's to get rid of your facial hair, because, you, you know, you, you, when you were an athlete, you, did, you were hairy, weren't you, on your face? So it was a lot of work. There was a lot of work, and you talk about it. it you, you refused, two years. You refused pain um, Yeah, I, I did it basically. That's electrolysis, torture. meaning they go into every hair one at a time. It was horrible. It was two years of work, but yeah, it was extraordinarily painful. Yeah. And every time the pain got, you know, certain areas are more painful than others, but when they get to the real painful stuff, yeah, I would just kind of sit there and just go, you deserve the pain. Mm. So that's shame just coming out there. So, yeah, that's so in what my year head, that's what I can say for just being you. What year did you meet Trudy then? And Because you saw her for five years. Yeah, um, about 84, uh, 80, between 84 and 85 is when I first got into therapy. Back then there was no internet. Yeah. You had no way to find somebody. How are you gonna find somebody who specializes in gender dysphoria? I'm sitting there watching TV. And they had this um, uh, gender clinic in Orange County. And I'm watching this on the news. They have a gender clinic? My God. So uh, I took down the name, back in those days, called information. <laughs> and uh, got the number, called the person up, certainly didn't tell them who I was. And uh, just said that, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of these issues. Uh, do you know somebody up in the L.A. area? Because I don't want to drive all the way to Orange County. Um, and in the L.A. area uh, that I could talk to, um, a therapist, gave me a couple of names. And Trudy was the only lady on it. And there was two other, two other guys. And I'd much rather talk to the lady. I can talk to them better than I can some guy. And so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I called her up a week later, made an appointment, and found Trudy. And Trudy was great because she not only giving the opportunity to talk about these issues, but also in ways to help me deal with it. I did start on hormones. I was on hormones for over four years uh, with the electrolysis, um, things like that. Uh, somewhat of the appearance started to change some. And um, <clears throat> uh, that's when you know, the rag started and this started and, you know, all the rumor, rumor, rumor mm. stuff started. Yeah. Okay. So 80s, tough time. And then you decide, you know, you can't go through with the transition. 90s, as we know, the Kardashian years. And you talk about Chris saving you and then you, you raise a family. And that was, uh, you know, your life for 20 odd years. And then obviously the kids grow up. Okay, so we're now approaching. Yeah, that's they all the way. Grew you know, up. Kids always grow up, right? That's the Good way day. it is. I fed them three meals a day and this <laughs> and that. Took them to school every day. Yeah, next thing you know, phew, uh, they're so, gone. So there we go. And then, then all of a sudden, okay. So then, you know, the, your marriage with Chris breaks down, not for reasons because of the gender dysphoria. And then you come to that point where you think, okay, now it is time. So what? When? Not this, so much. Actually, when Chris and I um, went our separate directions. It wasn't for me to transition or do any of that. No. It was just our relationship 
Every relationship changes, sure. okay? And the hardest thing in any relationship, long-term relationship, as people change, do you change together or do you change apart? You know, and for us, we changed apart. And there was no argument, there was no nothing. We did our divorce agreement in one day. Um, it was, we both knew it was the right thing to do. Uh, I leased a house in Malibu um, to get out. Um, and yeah, we're on you know, good terms today. Um, and so, uh, but there I was, back out in Malibu. I still got all the tabloid rumors going crazy and this and that. And there I was, out in Malibu. Exactly, not necessarily, down about a mile from where I was for six years. And I'm thinking to myself, am I just going to rot out here? You know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with my life? You know, um, I was getting really tired of, you know, going out, getting dressed, sneaking out. I had tabloid guys following me everywhere. Oh God, I had taking secret cars to get out of the property because I had to come out one gate and they would, you know, two or three of them be sitting out there and start following you. I would try to outrace them through the hills. I did everything. So was there just a tipping point then? Was there a point then when you were like, okay, right, okay, let's, let's do this. I got back into therapy. Um, and try to figure this out. Um, uh, did get back on hormones, because I just was better on hormones. It's kind of what I call takes the edge off. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, I'm with my therapist, and we're thinking, okay, you know, what's the answer here? Is there, an, is there any good answer? No. But there's got to be an answer here. So I started with every one of my kids, one at a time. I start there. Now, all of the kids have heard all these rumors. Actually got caught by Kim once. Yeah. Um, Kendall and Kylie, I didn't know I got caught, but they said they snuck around a corner or something. I don't know, and I was cross-dressed or whatever. Okay, which is not good to do with kids. Anyway, but they all knew, and they certainly had seen all the tabloids with me every week, you know. And, but it was the little subject we never, nobody ever talks. They know, but nobody's going to talk about it. Okay, it's the big secret. So anyway, start with Brandon, bring him over, said okay. And his mother had told him my issues years earlier. And he said this to me after a long discussion. He goes, you know what, Dad, I've always been proud that you're my father. He says, I go to the airport and I hand him my ID and it says Brandon Jenner. And they say, oh, is your father Bruce Jenner? And Brandon would go, yeah. And they say, oh, you know, he comes through all the time. He's always so nice and this and that. He goes, just every place I go, I always get that kind of reaction. And he said, um, and I've, I've always been just so proud to be your son. He goes, but I've never been more proud of you than I am right now. Heavy duty stuff. Yeah. And... Uh, that kind of started it off with the kids. I thought that was a good start. Hope it stays that way. <laughs> and so I slowly went through all 10 kids one at a time. And at, even at that time, I really didn't even know if I would actually be able to transition and live my life that way. Um, 
But that was a possibility. And I told him, that is a possibility. Okay, I'm not going to say yes, I'm not going to say no. I still got a lot of figuring out to do. The last person I had to talk to was my pastor. Okay, I am a person of faith. And um, <clears throat> because if I have said it once, and I think anybody who's struggling with something in their head they can't get rid of, and then it'd be gender dysphoria, it can be anything that's in their head. And if they have any faith whatsoever in their life, and in, in life, they always ask, like, God, why did you do this to me? Okay? Why me? You know? I'm thinking, God, you gave me all these great qualities, this, athletically, this and that, but, you know, took a little chuckle before he finished and says, oh, this is going to be a fun to watch, okay? And say, you know, let's give him a female brain and all this stuff and... You know, let's see how he deals with this and like throw little Bruce out into the world that way, you know, like a big joke. I used to think that. And so that was kind of the last person I had to talk to was my pastor. And he had seen all the stuff, but he'd never really, we had sat down and talked about it. And we sat for three hours talking about faith, talking about uh, God, talking about uh, everything that I had been going through. And, you know, he basically said, God loves you and he's, he's going to love your decision. Doesn't know what it's going to be. But he backs you all the way. Because you often think, when I go up to the pearly gates, you know, and I'm sitting there and I stand in front of them and, you know, I said, well, how did I do? You know, did I do a good job? You know? And uh, uh, I, what is his answer going to be? You know? So I, 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 I thought to myself, the next day I was up, I had these stupid remote control helicopters that I get into like for five years. And I was out in the field flying this little RC helicopter around. And uh, I put it down and just went for a walk through this open field. And thought to myself, you know what, maybe this is the reason God did put me on this earth. At this time and at this place in society. Because even back in the 80s, I could not have done this, okay? The only person anybody knew was Renee Richards. I think it was 1977. And she was not well-received as a, like a trans athlete in this case. Um, and the, it, now things were different. Um, people had come forward, especially in the public eye. You know, the people like Laverne Cox or Janet Mock or other trans people uh, had come by who were intelligent, smart, articulate, they expressed themselves very well. And I thought, maybe I can, you know, add myself to that conversation. Mm. Could I make a difference? Sure. And so that's what, it, that's, and I thought, you know what? You know, the worst thing that can happen is you transition and everybody hates your guts and say, oh, what a stupid weirdo, you know? Um, but I can live with that, you know? I can, uh, I'll, I'll find a life. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I, I said, okay, now, how do I do it? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, if I'm going to do it and I want to make a difference. And what a great opportunity when you're playing in the fourth quarter of life to make a genuine contribution to understanding in society. And you have made a difference, there's no doubt, in terms of moving the conversation on. So you've been Caitlin, well, I mean, you've obviously been Caitlin all your life, but you've been publicly Caitlin for four years, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, almost five, yeah, pushing five years. Almost five years. 
in that time, you've definitely moved the needle forward in terms of terms so. yes. of conversation. I know you've struggled in some parts with some of the reaction that you've received from people within the, the trans community. Oh. You have said many times, you're doing this for yourself. Uh, obviously, you're doing it to make a, a, a difference, but yeah. you can't... You can't satisfy everybody. No, of course not. Uh, see, I, yeah, I mean... And there's uh, a lesson there about acceptance and being judgmental, isn't oh. there? Absolutely. Many, many lessons to be learned in all of this stuff. Um, first thing you have to do is be true to yourself. Okay? My life today is so simple. Okay, you think, oh my God, well, it does take me longer to get ready in the morning. Okay, after that. And I do have now two bags instead of one bag to travel. Okay? I get it. Okay? But that's kind of the fun part. Um, but um, having the ability to just wake up in the morning and be yourself all day long. Not too many people can do that or say that, that they can just be themselves all day long. And that is the most, that, that's what I, the most important thing that I've gotten out of all of this. I don't have to sneak around anymore. I don't have to have two cases, one for him, one for her, when I go to a speech, you mm. know, and then worry about what security's gonna say if they look into the other one. I mean, all of these things, sneaking around, not being honest with people, you know. And that's I mean, something that your kids in particular said, wasn't it? Like they appreciated the fact, the honesty. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what this comes down to, And hopefully it teaches them honesty in their lives. And you, you spoke earlier about the importance yeah. of being, being a role model. And, and honesty is absolutely integral. Yeah, yeah. And so all of those things, just the personal stuff. And, but when you, you know, you, you trade one set of circumstances for another, certainly... Trans people in this society, in the United States, I mean, we have huge, huge issues. Um, and uh, yeah, we lose a trans woman of color one every two weeks in this country to murder. You know, I mean, every two weeks, trans women of color is murdered. And Things the suicide like rate? Suicide rate is nine times higher than the general public. Job discrimination, housing discrimination, you name it, we got it. Um, 25% of, I've heard that 25% of all uh, prostitutes are trans women. There's a big sex industry out there for trans women that make money and, and it's, it's a survival crime for them. You know, they can't get work anyplace else. And so this is a cash job. Uh, it's good money for them. They can pay the rent, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, well, tremendous issues, so AIDS when, issues. This so goes on and on and on. When the transgender, or some of the transgender community will be outside with a megaphone going, you know, you don't represent me, or, mm -hmm. which you did experience, then how does that leave you feeling? Are you, are you, can you, are you okay um, with that? I, how does that make you feel? Well, obviously it's hurtful if anybody, you know, who doesn't even know you, mm. never spent a, a minute with me, uh, has this perception of me and what I am. Um, and uh, so from that standpoint, it does hurt. And the other standpoint, um, uh, from my personally, I don't take any of that. If you look at hate stuff on Instagram and all that kind of stuff, sometimes I'll read it. I think it's pretty funny. Um, and so, uh, for me, I just want to kind of do my thing. I want to use, I want all the other trans people out there to use their platform 
and they all have, especially with social media today, they all have a platform. Mm. Now, their platform is different than my platform. I want to take my platform, okay, and use it for good to make change in the world, mm. okay? Um, and that's all I want. And so I, that's what I've done. I've just taken my platform and what I do in the celebrity world and this and that um, to try to make it better. Has it been easy? Not even close. No, okay, so. it has not been easy. I've raised between Mac and my foundation about $2.6 million, given it away to trans organizations, all this kind of stuff over the last few years. And um, yeah, and some and a lot of them, when they get the money, they're extraordinarily appreciative appreciative of it. Uh, but then on the other hand, you know, they're having their big fundraiser and say, "Oh, please don't show up. You're too controversial." Uh, and I go, "Huh? I'm like the most least controversial person in life." Okay, I mean, I'm just want to love everybody. And so, yeah, that makes it kind of difficult. So you're making a big contribution, right? I want to talk to you, Caitlin, about some of the lessons then, like that you've learned, okay? okay? You talk about the male athlete gender, okay? Like this stereotypical sporty guy who objectifies women. So it made me think, you know, we all have a front, don't we? Yeah, I, you know, I played the role of the, the sports hero, you know, the big sports guy. It was me. I mean, it was part of me. Yeah. There was a lot other things to me, but it was part of me. Um, I think what one, of the pe one of the reasons why people have a hard time dealing with myself today and what I've been through over the last few years is that you gave up the ultimate white, male, you know, supremacy that you had athletically, all that sort of stuff, okay? You gave up all of that, okay, to go what society perceives. I certainly don't believe this, but what society perceives as a weak female. Females are looking at being physically weaker. Females are looking to be emotionally weaker and all these kinds of stuff. Why would you give up all that male privilege, okay, to go over to a weak, you know, first of all, male privilege wasn't me, number one. Number two, this was... This was me over here, and I can, I can deal with those types of things. And I believe probably more in women than they believe in themselves, because I didn't grow up with all of the things that they had to grow up with, you know, mm. of being put down, of being weaker, of being waiting to be asked out on a date instead of just going out and getting the damn date, you know. I didn't deal with any of that kind of stuff. So... I think I look at women and womenhood in a much different way today yeah. than most women. And I think that's, that's a good thing. And I like to try to encourage women. You mentioned privilege. So people talk to you about privilege. You know, you're, you're, you were this privileged person, but it's all very well talking about privilege, but that doesn't mean that inside, and okay, privilege, I understand that. You know, wealth, you know, opportunities I, I that totally come up. I totally see it, yeah. but, but that does not mean that inside someone is not in serious pain and someone with privilege might be in more pain than someone who doesn't have quote unquote privilege. Totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Yes. It's I a bit have, simplistic, isn't I it? I've always had privilege. I've always, you know, obviously been male for a long time, white, came from a middle class, very middle class family. But I live in this great country where you have the opportunity to grow up, to be what you want to be. And 
I took that privilege and ran with it, literally, into the games, won, did all those types of things, yes. Everything I've gotten in my life, I've worked for. Hmm. And I beat this into my kids' heads, okay? Nobody's gonna give you anything, okay? Anything you want in life, you have to work for. Whether it's sports, whether it's fashion, whether it's business, whether it's music, it's all about hard work. Hard work, and uh, yeah, and you're gonna make mistakes. I've made plenty of them, okay? You're gonna make mistakes, learn from your mistakes, move on, but it's about hard work. It's about, again, getting up every day and being excited about the day, about yeah. what can I accomplish today? And if you can do that, and then the next day you get up with that same attitude, okay? What can I accomplish today? I don't want, and then you just start building up and up and little do you know, a year from now, two years from now, you really have something here, hmm. okay? Because you built it up every day. It's all we got is, is that day yeah, yeah, to do sure. something. Another one is, I'm sure, don't, you know, don't judge a book by a cover because there you were as this, I mean, archetype, someone who everyone looked at as, as having everything, but inside you were in a lot of I pain. Nothing. And it's very easy to, to look and judge people and think, yeah. hey, oh, how lucky are they? But Yeah, no, it's, it's exactly, I mean, I, yes, I was given a lot of things and lived a very good life, but I had so much, I was so empty inside you know, mm. and sometimes you have to do that, um, you know, in life, but at, at some point, you gotta take care of yourself. You gotta take care of yourself first. And if any lesson I've learned trying to take care of yourself first, even though there's other sets of circumstances that I have to deal with today that are different than they were five years ago. Uh, the bottom line is, my life is so much better today because I'm honest with myself and I've taken care of myself, hmm. okay? And that's the most basic thing and that's the most important thing, is to take care of yourself first. Because you can achieve anything in life, you've proved that. Literally, you, I mean, you've reached the absolute pinnacle, yeah. but the real treasure in life is in honesty and peace of mind. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. No, I have a lot of peace of mind now. Yeah. Sure, there's other issues I have to deal with, new issues, which is always, we're always gonna have issues, okay? It's how you deal with them. Yeah, life is it's, a test, which comes back to that quote of yours, wasn't yeah. it? You know, it's not, it's not the heights you, you achieve, it's the obstacles you overcome. Yeah, that's exactly right. Were you able to take any of the lessons from, from the Olympics? Uh, that helped you when it, in transitioning, transitioning and, and all and that? that? Yeah, self-confidence. Yeah, if I can take on the world physically and kick their butt, I can take on the world here, okay? I mean, obviously that is part of your core. It's part of what you do. So yeah, some of the qualities, uh, now a different set of circumstances, different sets of techniques. Uh, but yeah, I can... I, I would like my legacy to be that I made a difference. You know, my existence on this earth, I, I tried to make a difference. Um, not only inspired a lot of people athletically, because I 
get phone, you know, stuff even today. I still get stuff. I got stuff yesterday I was looking at. Jeez. Um, how you inspired people because of that performance. And then same thing yesterday at the grocery store. This lady cornered me for 20 minutes talking about her life and all the things that she's been through and the kids and this and that, how much she admires you and what you've done. Obviously, what I've done had an impact on her. She was very sweet, very, very nice. But from that standpoint, I would, you know, when it's all said and done, I would like to have made somewhat of a difference in society, in life. What, made, what means more to you then? Making a difference through transitioning and being, you know, being Caitlin and being an example like that and putting yourself on a pedestal to help other people raise themselves up or your Olympic Trump? Um... I think it's pretty much a combination of two, uh, but I would have to put um, uh, my identity as higher on it. First of all, it was tougher to do. You know, I trained for 12 years for the games. I trained 65 years to transition in 19, you know, uh, 2015. Um, and uh, it was harder to do, it was less accepted. It wasn't like the right thing to do. Everybody loved the games. What a great story, loved the games. But a lot of people, when they see you transition, you know, will hate your guts. Look at, look at sometimes the quotes on Instagram and this, and it's just people. I, I don't take social media seriously, mm -hmm. but it is pretty funny what they'll come up with. And, um, and so by far, that was a lot more difficult. Uh, I didn't want to disappoint people, you know, because mm, sure. they had you up on this pedestal. So it was not an e easy decision to make. Sure. But eventually I made it because I knew that's what I had to do to live. Sure. And in doing so, you've helped other people live. If you were to go back then to just, uh, if you could travel back in time to just after, after 76, you know, what, what would you say to you having just won the gold medal? Don't change a thing. I have my life, I've lived it. I, I wouldn't change a thing. The games were great, fun. I learned a lot about myself, reached great heights, inspired other people with that. <clears throat> um, uh, after that, I got into work, into business, which to me was very, very interesting kind of in the entertainment world, did a lot of fun stuff, great stuff. Um, honestly, married three times. They were all good women. Uh, in particularly the last one, 23 years, we raised an amazing family. I hope I was a good parent, good father. Not as good with some as I was with others uh, because of the circumstances. Um, but I tried to spread myself out as much as I could. Um, and uh, yeah, then finally, after raising all these kids, um, it was time for me. It was time for me to figure myself out and move on with my life. And fortunately, I had a family behind me that would support me. Yeah. And so I could move on. Olympics next year, 20, yeah. 2020. Now, you are a vocal person who speaks for trans rights. What's your, what's your view as, they, as the IOC then consider 
what to do with in terms of you know transgender people at the Olympics what should they do um, I think they should do exactly what they are doing um, the Olympic organization is the only organization who has seriously taken this issue or taken this issue seriously uh, for many many years back when I was competing the women had to take saliva tests to make sure they were genetically male okay um, Actually, in 1976, I even questioned some of them. I go, oh, my God. <laughs> I had a, a discus thrower lifting next to me in my last lifting workout before in the village before the games, and she outlifted me. This girl was so much stronger than I was. I'm going, oh, my God. i got to get out of this gym. The chicks are outlifting me. But anyway, um, we have taken that issue very seriously um, throughout the Olympics. And throughout it, it has changed because uh, we're dealing with athletes from all over the world. Okay, and we have been drug tested, uh, identity tested uh, for the last 40 something years, almost probably 50 years. So they have the most information on it, okay? Um, recently they have uh, come up with standards for trans people, and it's not just for trans people, also people um, uh, who um, basically were born with you know, both sex, uh, they've had a few cases like that. Uh, and uh, what do they do now? I mean, everybody deserves a right to be able to compete. Uh, what do they do now? And so they started coming up with hormone levels that you can have and this and that. So now trans people can compete. Uh, I know we got one female to male athlete that has nobody has made an Olympic team yet, okay? But a female to male uh, athlete that's a world-class uh, like triathlete, um, they had other issues come up. They had a, a, a sailor who was a sailor, and he had testicular cancer, lost both his testicles, and he had to take uh, testosterone shots. Well, all of a sudden, now he's illegal to sail. You know, what do we do here? So the Olympic Committee has made a lot of stride on that, and I think other organizations should. I think the most important thing is people that are different, uh, people that are dealing with uh, trans issues and stuff like that, um, I think they deserve an opportunity to play sports. Sports was very, 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 very good to me. And we should not deny them of that opportunity. But also I think we should look at it very closely um, and, to, uh, and pretty much deal with it on an individual basis. But the Olympic Committee is doing a good job. Caitlin Jenner, it's yes. been an absolute treat being in your house, sitting opposite, talking to you. You're a wonderful talker. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on Don't Tell Me The Score. I've been told I talk too much. Well, that's good for a but podcast. that's good for your job. Absolutely. That's a good Well, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you very it has much. Been so much. Have you enjoyed Thank yourself? You so much. We'll get together when I come back. You promise? I'm yeah. up for it. Oh, absolutely. Listen, you, well, you, you're you more worry. than welcome in my house. I'll tell you, it's not quite as um, quite as. It doesn't have this view? No, it doesn't. It's, well, not, it's not Malibu. Put it that way. No, no, the ocean. Actually, it's a nice day. Actually, a couple <laughs> of... You can see Catalina out there. Yeah. My son and I, we took the... Uh, Two weeks ago, we took uh, two jet skis and went to Catalina. Wow. Across the strait. <laughs> it was rough coming. Amazing. But we made it. You made it. And I'm delighted you did because it means yes. I got to talk to you. Caitlin Jenner, Thank it's you. been an absolute pleasure having it you has on. Been. It was a absolute joy. Thanks.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. And just a reminder that my debut book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself, published by Bloomsbury, is out on January the 18th. In it, I share some of the best lessons I've learned over the last five years or so on things like avoiding burnout and developing emotional intelligence. But I also really want to challenge the sort of success evangelism that we hear so much about, which implies that continually chasing success out there in the world sometime in the future will give us what we really want, which is to feel content and fulfilled internally. Now, drawing on some of my favorite conversations, I'm arguing that culturally we have it the wrong way around and that we're looking basically in the wrong places and that genuine peace and contentment is actually so close that we tend to overlook it. But once you do recognize it, it is an absolute game changer. Please do check out the link in my show notes to find out more.